Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking about more messy. The saga continues. Uh, we'll be talking Pitti Martinez and Atlanta United. We'll be talking El Trafico, Hell is Real, U.S. Men's National Team, our favorite podcasts out there, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light. David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, September 7th in the year 2020? I am doing well after a busy weekend. I had uh, League MX on Friday night and then MLS both Saturday and Sunday, and including a, a little weather delay on Sunday, which made it a longer night than initially planned. Yes. Uh, surprise, surprise. There was uh, thunderstorms, lightning and rain down in uh, <laughs> down in Miami, down in Florida there. So it was a, a long night. But, you know, we're, we're talking about soccer here, so it could be so, so much worse. It was still fun uh, to uh, to get back. Lots of MLS action, as you mentioned. OK, so I have three things, you know, at the top of the show, we often talk about our, our viewing habits and things that are that are happening. I have, I have three things. One is just a continuation uh, and a reiteration of the fact that the Ted Lasso show is wonderful. Okay, as we've said time and time again, uh, it is it is getting plaudits and rightfully so. Uh, wonderful heart, and you know now I, I am addicted and I'm committed to it. Now every single week, both myself and my family are waiting for it to drop. I don't know if people say that anymore about things, but when the newest episode drops on that Friday, we get very very excited. And it, and it is yet to, to let us down in terms of the heart and the content and the interesting. It is a comedy. It's not a, it's not a laugh out loud, rolling on the floor type of comedy. And that's not a bad thing, actually. But it, it, it's very, very good. Uh, secondly, I have found myself into uh, Cobra Kai. Now, Cobra Kai had been out for a while but now it's on Netflix, and so a whole new group and audience is, is discovering it. And for those that don't know, it is basically the continuation of the original Karate Kid uh, starring Ralph Macchio. And it is, it, it is wonderful. In the same way that, that uh, Ted Lasso kind of veered off from what you thought it was going to be, that's exactly what Cobra Kai has, uh, has done. I recommend it highly. It is it is wonderful. Uh, I continue to watch. I'm into the second season now. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be more seasons, but considering the fact that it is kind of popular, um, it would not surprise me if they continue to do some more. And then my my third thing, I'm going to hold off on the third thing. You go there, and then I'm going to come back with my my third uh, my third viewing thing here. What have you been watching, my friend? Well, I've watched the first four episodes of Tottenham All or Nothing. I'm going to wait for you to yes. uh, be caught up so we can discuss it together. I will say so far, it is a Jose Mourinho infomercial. You would have no idea how this guy has ever had an issue with anybody in his life. He comes off like the ultimate players coach, but we haven't really hit the rough stretch of the season yet when the injuries came and they started getting knocked out of competition. So well, are you concerned that it's more of a propaganda piece then? Is it turning into that? Are you, yeah, are you so far. cynical? And, <laughs> sure, oh, really? It's compelling, but, but I mean, my God, I have not seen somebody play to a camera like that since, uh, you know, those episodes of like the Hills and Laguna beach, <laughs> but I did finish Deadwood which uh, I know is a show you haven't seen, but people on Twitter have been asking me for my opinion. So please indulge me for a couple of minutes. Sure. It was a bit of a slow burn. Didn't click right away. But when it clicked, I absolutely fell in love with these people. It's this great ensemble cast, this community. And I just loved 
uh, each episode sort of swinging around and checking in with everybody. What, what's going on with Jane and Joni? What's going on with uh, Charlie Utter and Tom Nuttall? Uh, let's head to the gym and check in with Al and Dan and Jewel. Let's go to the hardware store and check in with Saul and Trixie. And when it was over, I felt this profound sadness that these people were out of my life, which I think is the mark of a great television show. And it really is such a shame when you think about all the shows that stay on TV well beyond their sell-by date, uh, shows that frankly had like one season's worth of story and hang around for five or six seasons just so everybody can keep collecting checks. And then this one to have uh, it taken away after three seasons when there was so much more runway there, the best was still to come, so much more story to tell. It really is one of the great uh, television tragedies. Uh, I felt that sadness even all these years later. But uh, no, very good. And also, it deals with a lot of real life characters. So the history buff in me, it really satisfied that part of my brain. I got to do some Wikipedia deep dives on the real George Hurst and Seth Bullock. So big thumbs up for Deadwood. But, really but isn't, isn't uh, knowing when to leave the party and, and leaving something to be desired at some point or, or something more, or people wanting more, isn't that the mark of, of true greatness? Did you really want it to continue and possibly jump the shark and have problems? No, that's fair. Yeah. And and all these years later, they did do a movie to bring some closure to the story, which I thought was very good, much better than the Breaking Bad movie. I know mm-hmm. Breaking Bad is a media darling and everything they do uh, gets praised, but I thought that movie was awful. While the Deadwood movie I actually thought was quite good and 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 worked really well, sort of picking up where the TV show left off and bringing some measure of closure. So yeah, I, I guess you could argue that, that maybe it, it got out uh, at the right time. All right, we'll finish it with this in terms of our, uh, our, our viewing this week. Have you ever seen the documentary Don't F With Cats, Mossy? have not. Okay, so this is a documentary that's been on Netflix for a long time. I, it was one of those, when we were talking about hitting the bottom of the barrel, it was one of those that I just kept scrolling by. Uh, a, a full uh, transparency here. I'm allergic to cats, okay? I don't particularly... I don't, it's not that I don't like them. It's just, I don't, I don't go out of my way when it comes to cats. And, and a lot of this is relative to dogs. So I'm turned off oftentimes by cats. It's not that I don't find them cute. They're very cute and all that, but I think being allergic to it, uh, to, to cats, and it's not their fault that I'm allergic to it, but you know, it's just the, the fact of the matter. Okay. This has been on Netflix for a long time and I just kind of passed over it. And this is a perfect example of why branding, and in this case, the title of your project is so important, okay? It, while it, on the surface, has to do with, with cats, ultimately, this is a detective, mystery, serial killer type of documentary, and it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's great. It's incredible, and had it had a different name, I don't think that I would have passed over, and it got, it got lost in the Tiger King type of stuff. That was what it was called, right? Tiger King, uh, that everyone, we were all right. going crazy about. It got lost in all of that and didn't get its due, and it deserves your time. It just deserves a much better title. I really think that the name, while provocative, I, I don't think it did it justice. It's a really, really good documentary. I recommend it highly. I finally succumbed, and maybe it is like the ultimate bottom of the barrel. Well, I finally just said, all right, fine, I'm just going to watch it. And it was not what I was expecting at all. And I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I know plenty of you out there are nodding your heads and saying, yes, finally, way, way to catch up. Uh, but I, I finally did. So that's, that's my other recommendation if you're out there and you, if you are passing it over, don't stop on it, watch it. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Uh, Mossy, anything else uh, from a viewing perspective? 
That's it. All right. You ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. Uh, you know, each and every week we dive into it, especially during the pandemic. We don't even mess around anymore with uh, my traditional state of the union. We're going to dive right into it. And now for what has been a number of weeks in, in a row, we're going to start off the show talking about Messi. And rightfully so, because this is arguably the greatest player of all time, who over the last, let's say, three weeks has performed in that it was uh, there was an element of performance art to everything on both sides and we finally uh have the uh <laughs> the the stage director or the or the director saying all right scene in that we know exactly what is going to happen at least for the next year when it comes to Messi he's not going anywhere uh despite so many rumors and a lot of people believing that it would happen he is not going anywhere however uh, which means he's staying at Barcelona. However, uh, we have on our hands a, uh, a, a something that we haven't seen before in a very publicly disgruntled Messi. And look, I know he's had his problems with the Argentine F- uh, Federation and he's, and he's at times expressed displeasure, but never to this level and never this public and never this clear and concise. The the quotes and the <laughs> the disappointment and the anger towards Barcelona, even while he was saying he was going to stay another year, were not expected, for, at least from me, and are, from a Barcelona perspective, devastating. All right, initial thoughts on on this on this decision and where we are right now when it comes to Messi, and then I'm going to come back and give you mine. Yeah, a lot of people are making the 2016 Argentina comparison, but so far, this is different. Uh, That was a complete U-turn. He went from quitting Argentina in the summer of 2016 to here we are in September of 2020. He's still playing for Argentina with every intention of competing in a World Cup in December of 2022. Now, with Barcelona, he didn't walk anything back. He made it perfectly clear in that interview. And by the way, big spot for Goal.com. Uh, He made it uh, perfectly clear that he thinks the club is a disaster right now and he wants to leave and he's only staying because he's being forced to stay. And he certainly sounded like a guy with every intention of playing out this season and then leaving next summer for free when his contract is up. Now, Barcelona are still holding out hope of getting him to sign an extension. They probably felt like they weren't going to turn his head completely around now, but let's keep him here for this season and we'll work on it. Maybe he'll like playing for Ronald Koeman. Maybe we'll have a good season. Maybe he'll feel better about the direction of the club, particularly after the presidential elections in March. And I know in talking to you off the air, you think that's still the likelier outcome here that he actually is won over and, and, and ends up signing an extension and staying with Barcelona. Yeah. I mean, first things first, it takes two to tango and there is blame to go all over the place when it comes to Barcelona and Messi for how this was handled and and done. You have Messi and Barcelona seemingly have managed to take a bad situation and make it much worse. All right. But look, I'm I'm all in and here for the drama and for the entertainment and the content that it is generating for us. Because now, as you said, we have Barcelona faced with having a lame duck messy for the next year and the inevitable taking of sides that is going to happen when it comes to fans and media and everybody, because this is the greatest player and arguably the greatest player ever to play the game. And from a messy perspective, you have, like I said, arguably the greatest player of all time who is risking hurting his image 
and his brand by looking over the next year uh, disheartened, disinterested, or dare I say it, average while he plays out this next year in what amounts to soccer purgatory. So best case scenario, and you mentioned a little bit, Barcelona makes changes immediately to leadership off the field and let's be honest, on the field that fuels Messi with you know, somehow a renewed belief and a confidence that reignites his obvious love for this club uh, and this passion for Barcelona that has given him so much. Worst case scenario though, uh, Messi spends this year in soccer purgatory, hurting the image of both the player and the club. And then he moves on for a free in this, in this bad, horrible breakup. And he moves on like this scorned, hurt, and vengeful lover to whatever, whatever is next. I, as you said, believe that over the next year, things will change and that he will stay. You know, he talked a lot about the reaction of his children and of his wife and of his family. I don't. I, I know it's obvious, and it was very public that his children and his wife don't necessarily want to go. And I think that he doesn't want to go anywhere. Uh, I think we all know the cocoon that that he and his family have lived in, and by the way, will continue to live in for the rest of their lives. A lot of that is based out of the heartbeat that is Barcelona, and I think I think he wants to stay. So was this all a big power play? Was this all a big performance? Yes, but 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 understandable. And for what he has given, for what he has done, for the pressure and the stress that he has shouldered and, and admirably shouldered over the years, I, I can I can forgive him and understand him for doing this. And I can also understand Barcelona recognizing that we have this asset and we are going to leverage it and we are not going to let him go despite everything that he has done. And we do believe that we have the law on, uh, on our side, which gets to the, the question that we were talking about in the control room yesterday with our good friends, Johnny Araya and uh, Zach Kenworthy about the fact that if you recognize that you are going to you're going to take the stance where you're not going to sell him for that $700 million and who is going to pay $700 million for Messi. Do you just take whatever you can get to get something over the next year, as opposed to losing him for nothing in a year? And this is, this is a debate. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on that. And just this whole, what has to be said is a, is a fiasco. Uh, And as I said, by, by both parties, yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, I agree with you that that part about his family in the interview was uh, very noteworthy. And so that's always going to be a pressure he's going to have to deal with if he actually wants to leave. The fact that his wife and kids absolutely do not want to leave Barcelona. And and as we mentioned, th- this would have been such weird timing now for him to make this sort of move. First of all, the way one season is sort of bleeding into the next one. And then to be moving to a new country and a new club in the midst of this pandemic and playing your first matches for your new club in an empty stadium. So there were a lot of things working against this move now. It it was sort of odd timing for Lionel Messi to switch clubs. But yeah, if he plays out this season and then leaves for free next summer, there are many people that are going to question Barcelona and say the smart move would have been to cash in now because if you you 
knew he was unhappy. You might as well have cut your losses and, and, and moved on into whatever the post-Messi era of this club is going to be. I've also heard, though, that, listen, your ultimate goal is for Messi to play out his whole career with Barcelona. And if you have him under contract for another year, uh, the correct thing is to try until the very last day to change his mind. And so Barcelona actually are doing the sensible thing here. I actually tend to lean that way. Like you said, we both think there's a distinct possibility that he will change his mind and end up signing an extension. And so you have to exhaust every effort uh, towards convincing him to do that. I, I think to decide a year ahead of time, well, if he's unhappy now, let, let's just cut our losses and, and see what deal we could get for him out there. I don't know. I, 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 I still would struggle to, to, to sign off on any kind of move that sends Messi out of that club when you, you think maybe if we had sort of waited it out, there's a chance we could have convinced him to, to change his mind. So, But yeah, it's going to be a very interesting debate over the next year to see how this all plays out. And look, the dynamics in a locker room and a new coach and a disgruntled employee is basically what you have. And we've seen over the years where <laughs> you send them to run with the youth team or you don't have them at, at, at training, uh, you know, as we've discussed before. And what does that dynamic look like? Is this, you know, I mentioned the fact that he's in this purgatory and the potential for a, a disheartened, disgruntled, and therefore mediocre type of messy performance over the next year? Or does the opposite happen where this fires him up and he says, this is it. This is, if I'm going out, I'm going out in a blaze of glory and you, you ain't seen nothing yet. I don't know what kind of messy we see going forward. And the other part of it is, Mossy, is that if Barcelona is truly messed in club, the way I read that sometimes is that there is nobody bigger than the club and the Messi will come and go and be a wonderful uh, moment and one of the great moments in their history but standing on principle whether it's the contract or in a certain way saying even a year of Messi and losing him for free is still better than letting him go and uh, you know, uh, knocking down our price or not having him commit to the contract that uh, that we signed, all, all, all of those things. I do think in a certain way, this stance, while it can be shaped to look poor uh, on Barcelona, in a certain way, they are, they are living up to the fact that this is a club that ultimately the shirt is more important than the human beings in it. No, no, that's all fair. And you know, there is a, a historical precedent here. If you remember the uh, Maradona HBO documentary, sure. um, after they won the UEFA Cup in 1989, defeating a Stuttgart side featuring Jurgen Klinsmann, uh, he told the Napoli president he wanted to leave, that he had accomplished everything he set out to accomplish uh, with Napoli, and he was kind of tired of the pressure of living in that city. And the president said no and forced him to stay. And, and Maradona ended up sticking around for a while longer, somewhat begrudgingly, until obviously the drug suspension. And there was an incredible image in that documentary of Napoli's Christmas dinner in December of 1990. And Maradona just sitting at this table, kind of staring off into space and looking like he didn't want to be there. And so, I don't know, we, we could be headed for that with Messi here. But I will say, I've heard people suggest that Messi is going to quote unquote mail it in this season. Uh, I don't think there's any chance of that. The guy is a competitor. And if you put him on a field with other players, he's going to be messy. So I think he's going to have a very good season and play the way he always does. I, I really believe that. And I also think some people have gone too far in painting this 
disastrous picture of what Barcelona are going to be this upcoming campaign. We've talked about this too. There's something called super club insularity, which means that if you're one of the super clubs with all the advantages that come with that, there's only so far you can fall. And, and if they're going to have messy, healthy playing week in and week out, they're going to challenge for the La Liga title. They're going to be in the knockout stages of the Champions League. I'm sorry. There's still enough talent there, even if the pieces don't fit as well as you'd like. There are only a select few teams in Europe that can fully exploit What's wrong with Barcelona now? They happen to run into one of them <laughs> in a major way in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. So I don't think there's any chance that Messi mails it in and this season ends up being this total catastrophe. I think it's it's going to feel like recent Barcelona seasons where they're not quite as good as they've, they've been in the past. And you can sense that all is not right there, but they're still talented enough to churn out results against the vast majority of teams they play. And so they're still going to be in the mix in all the competitions. And so that's kind of how I see this season playing out. I could be wrong, but that's kind of what I expect. Okay, let's finish it here and, and kind of, uh, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, if Barcelona had come to the conclusion that, look, nobody's going to pay $700 million for Messi at 33 uh, years old, probably at any age, let's be honest. Uh, and that was just a number that was, that was put in there. If they said, all right, we got one more year with him, what is that worth out there on the market in terms of getting something in return? What would you accept for Messi? Would you accept... Phil Foden, I think, was the one of the names that was bandied about. Would that would that be okay? I mean, what, yeah, I mean, what is the level? What is the you know what is the, what is the high and what is the low of what is acceptable in a trade for a thirty three year old Lionel Messi in twenty twenty? Yeah, you mentioned the fun control room conversation we had last night, and it, it was in that vein of if you're Barcelona and you decide to cut your losses now, and teams call you up and say, "Hey, we're all, we'll offer you such and such straight up for Messi." Who would you take? Who wouldn't you take? It was a fun little control room conversation. And yeah, I think we settled on it's either got to be a package of things or if it's going to be a one for one, it's got to be a guy that's either a superstar now or a budding superstar that you feel like you could build your team around. It can't be messy straight up for a guy who's just a good player. And so, you know, we, we sort of landed on where if it's that sort of Sancho Mbappe did we even did we include Havertz on, in that? I, I don't remember. We did, and I shot that down. No, yeah, you no. shot that, that. That yeah, you'd have to think about it. again. The the premise here, folks, is if you come away from your conversations with Messi feeling pretty confident that it's only going to be one more year of Messi, and then he leaves for free, and so you sort of have to measure the value of that one more year of Messi versus being able to get some young stud that could potentially be there for many years. Like I said, you could build around. Obviously, if it's somebody like Mbappe, you do it without even thinking twice about it. But then when you start working your way down to like more like Sancho, Havertz, Phil Foden level players, and then you even mentioned Johnny Raya, guys like De Bruyne. And, you know, so it was a fun debate and we, we kind of went back and forth on it. Foden, I wouldn't do. De Bruyne, I think I'd think about very hard and probably would do it. I mean, what if, what if, <laughs> would you do it for Neymar? Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. I'm not sure I would with his, he's 28 and the injury problems he's had recently. And, and, and uh, I'd, I'd think twice about that. I'd like to get somebody younger, but you do uh, it for Jaden Sancho. Uh, I think I would. Yeah. Wow. Right. But in this vein of talking about young budding superstars, I will say, and what's been just a depressing time for Barcelona fans, the one source of optimism here is this Ansu Fati yep. who um, had a, Fantastic last few days with Spain, uh, came on against Germany, became their, their second youngest ever player, and then scored against Ukraine, became their youngest ever uh, goal scorer. And he, to me, is a special, special talent. So that is something they can maybe say to Messi in conversation, be like, look, we have this kid here and don't, you know, we, we might have your next Neymar here on the way and a guy that can play in that left side of the attack. 
But the flip side of it is I think Barcelona have really screwed the pooch here in, in the way they're getting rid of some of these players. They felt like in, on the heels of that Bayern defeat, they had to make a big show about the fact that they were clearing house and they very publicly told certain players that, that they weren't needed anymore. And so they eliminated all their leverage in doing so. And so they're basically having to give away some good players here. Rakitic went back to Sevilla for like no money. Arturo Vidal is working on a move to Inter, uh, which, by the way, I think is a great move for Inter. And for that's probably going to be very little money. And then the most damning one, Luis Suarez, who I'm sure, I'm sorry, still has like legitimate value in the transfer market. I know he has only one more year left on his contract. And, and you, you read what this potential deal to Juventus could be, and, and they'd basically be giving the guy away, which which uh, is, is, I think is a huge mistake. I think it's a great move for Juventus, by the way. And it'd be fascinating to see Luis Suarez having played six seasons with Messi, then go to play... Cristiano Ronaldo. I think he's, you know, there are people that said, well, well, if you're going to get rid of Gonzalo Higuain because you want to get younger, you bring in Luis Suarez. That doesn't make sense. Well, I think Suarez is much better than he's Higuain. He's a better player. Much better fit yeah. with uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. I, I think about that possible front three of Dybala, Ronaldo, and Luis Suarez. I mean, forget about it. That deal, by the way, it is interesting. The rules are different in Italy and Spain as far as uh, whether you count as an EU player or not. He, he, Luis Suarez counts as a EU player in Spain. He wouldn't in Italy. So that's emerged as a potential stumbling block because uh, Juventus actually used their last non-EU spot in Weston McKinney. So the exactly. Weston McKinney acquisition is kind of affecting a little bit here, this Luis Suarez pursuit. But uh, it turns out Luis Suarez's wife is Italian or of Italian citizenship. And so he's eligible to take an Italian citizenship exam right now. So I think he's taking it today, actually. It's an Italian language exam, which if he passes, he then can evidently obtain an Italian passport and count as a EU player. And that would unlock this deal with Luis Suarez going to Juventus. So uh, Luis deve imparare l'italiano. Question most importante. Benissimo. All right, wonderful. Who knew that uh, Weston McKinney was so important in the uh, machinations <laughs> of, uh, of uh, Juventus? All right, anything else uh, you want to talk about, uh, either Messi or anything uh, uh, that's related or, or not related to that in terms of uh, transfers out there, Uh No, that is it. All right, we're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the return of <laughs> uh, the EPL. And that starts up, well, gosh, days from now, uh, this weekend. Uh, can't believe it. Uh, no, no rest at all. We're, we're, we're back at it. So we'll talk a little EPL when we come back after this break. Moving on. Okay, welcome back. Uh, we're going to talk a little uh, EPL because the most popular league in the world returns this weekend. And after one of the most interesting and crazy seasons, which was 2019-2020 season. Uh, we're back, so everybody's got best laid plans, and uh, everybody's ready for some sort of challenge to the runaway winners from uh, last year, which were, or last season, which were, as we all know, Liverpool. All right, first and foremost, Mossy, anybody jump out as legit contenders to challenge Liverpool's supremacy? Well, I think any conversation about the title has to center on Liverpool and Manchester City. Those two clubs have formed almost a Real Madrid-Barcelona-like duopoly at the top of the Premier League the last few years. And while there are other clubs that uh, are doing some good things and have reason for excitement, and we'll get to them in a minute, it feels like a stretch to pick any one of them to actually win the title over those two teams. So the conversation begins with Liverpool and City, and here's what I'll say about Liverpool. When you've had so much success and the pieces fit so well 
it's natural to adopt an if it ain't broke, don't fix it uh, philosophy and to talk yourself out of deals uh, mm -hmm. because you don't want to upset the apple card. But I think Jurgen Klopp feels the need to freshen things up a bit. Uh, he's a little bit concerned that uh, if they come in this season with, again, essentially the same players, they've won, they've scaled the mountaintop now, they've won the Champions League, they've won the Premier League, that this is a season where a little bit of staleness and complacency could creep in, and he wants to guard against that, which is why he passed on Timo Werner, but I get the sense he really wants to get this Thiago deal done, and I agree with him. I, I think a move like that, listen, I know they have some good, young players like Curtis Jones and Ryan Brewster and Harvey Elliott, and maybe one of them could emerge. Maybe Nabi Keita could make a leap or Minamino. There are guys that could potentially give uh, this season's team a little bit of a different feel, but not to the degree that bringing in a guy like Thiago would. So I'd like to see Liverpool get that move over the line. If not, if they go into the season, like I said, with essentially the same team, I think they will fall back a little bit. Uh, it's going to be tough to play at that pace for another season. They finished with 97 and 99 points the last two campaigns. So I, I think they dropped down a little bit. Uh, City are going to have a bit of a bounce back. I don't think quite back up to their 100-point level, but enough that they're going to sort of meet in the middle. And so I expect actually a fun title race between those two teams. I expect them to finish with around 90 points. And I I still slightly lean Liverpool for the title, but but to me, it's pretty close to a 50-50 this season. Let me ask you something, Masi. If so you, so, you just said that about uh, Liverpool. What if I told you that Virgil Van Dyke, and I'm knocking on wood, but let's just say he, you know, he he twisted his ankle in the first week and was out for uh, for months. Would would your assessment of Liverpool automatically immediately change? Yes, that would be a very damaging development. Yes, I mean, I think he's the most important, most important player on that team. I think, well, you know, we know about his dominance, but we also know about his uh, stability and physical stability and consistency that he has. And I mean, I love watching him play. I love that he is, he is so good at a time when there is, let's be honest, a dearth of, of dominant center backs uh, in the game. You know, he, he is recognized and I don't think they can pay him enough. Uh, I think he is, I think he's the key. I think he is the key to that team. They'll score goals. They'll they'll run riot over uh, over different teams. They will be exciting. They will be entertaining. But without him, I think they become a very very different team very very quickly. Without any even remotely close to suitable replacement when it comes uh, when it comes to the back there, I do think that Chelsea is something we're going to talk about, and rightfully so, given the amount of money that they spent and the amount of players that they have coming in with Werner's, uh, Ziyech, Havertz, Joe Silva, Chilwell, I think that's all of them. Uh, I think there's, there, there might be more uh, that I've missed, but the reality is that with that comes a fair expectation, I think, for them to challenge for the title. Is, is that wrong? Is that, is, that a, is that a bridge too far, given the talent that they already had and talent that they added even before the end of the year and the talent that is, that is incoming right now. Is it legitimate for us to look at Chelsea as they need to challenge for that, for that top spot? Expecting them to challenge for the title might be a little bit of a stretch this season. I actually think that it's not all going to come together as nicely as, as, as they're hoping for. Uh, now I love all the players they signed with the exception of Thiago Silva. They're all young enough that you can look at this as sort of a multi-year project and all these moves are going to pay dividends eventually. But I don't know, for some reason, I, I think this season, it's going to be a little bit bumpier than, than some were expecting. It's a slightly odd dynamic with the, the players that did well enough last season to expect to have big roles 
in this campaign, the Mason Mounts and Tammy Abrahams, and now are they going to be usurped by these new signings? And how's Lampard going to manage that? I'm still a little bit on the fence on Frank Lampard, frankly. So my hot take here is I actually don't have Chelsea in my top four. Ooh, wow. <laughs> we buried the lead. We buried yes, the lead. Yes. Oh, my. Yeah. Really? Yeah, no, I, 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 I don't know. I just have a, a weird feeling that it's not all going to come together as, as nicely as, as everybody hopes. Uh, and, and it's funny because if you look at each player individually they signed, and even Thiago Silva, I think, has a lot left in the tank and give him a good season. And then certainly, I mean, from the midfield up and Werner and, and Ziyech and, and Havertz. But I don't know. I mean, you okay. think that all these guys are going to hit the ground running and all the pieces are going to fall into place? Uh, well, well, no, my point is in that scenario, because you're you're looking at it much more as a long term type of play. I'm I'm not. I mean I mean all these players have plenty of experience. It's not as sure, if they've yeah. never played the game. So I think in your scenario where they're not top four, I think that is an unmitigated disaster and a failure. <laughs> okay, and a complete failure. Is is that is that harsh? Is that wrong for me to? No think no that? no no. Uh, you're right. If they fall out of top four, that this with with the moves they made this season will be viewed as a but failure. You just don't Absolutely. think it's going to come together as quickly as needed in order to, to, to do that. Right. Yeah. If you told me somebody other than Liverpool or city was going to win the title, I would go United. I think they're the third best team. As you know, very high on Manchester United, the second half of last season. And I think that's going to carry over. Uh, You now have Bruno Fernandes for the full season. Pogba seems invested again. They added Donnie Van de Beek, who I'm actually not sure where exactly he's going to play, but very good player. That, that, Mm -hmm. that did reek a little bit of, well, we might as well do something here, so let's sign this guy. But because it wasn't really a position of need, but nevertheless, you know, can't hurt to add another really quality midfielder into that mix. And we'll see. You know, we, 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 I, I sort of buried uh, the lead here. Which is an important caveat: the transfer window closes October fifth, so the season starts now. So we're, we're previewing this, but understanding there's still a month left in the transfer window, and United are a team that's out there still looking to make multiple moves at a defender, Opamecano, perhaps. So we'll see what this team actually looks like at the close of the window. But I, I'm high on Manchester United. I would pick them to finish third, and then here's my little hot take fourth place. This team might be getting the mossy documentary bump. Uh, I do admit I I am influenced by documentaries. I always sort of buy into this airbrush version of things. I think Steve Avery was innocent and uh, same thing with Adnan (laughs) Sayed. And I now think Jose Mourinho is like the greatest guy in the world. Um, I'm picking Tottenham to finish fourth. Oh, for Um, love of God. I've sort of been, I've I've bought into the injury narrative from last season. And that if you actually looked at that, the way they played when they had Kane and Son available and he had his full complement of players, they did look to me like a top four team under him. And so I I think Mourinho is actually going to do a better job than expected there and get him to fourth place. Uh, And then, you know, the other big six team we should mention is Arsenal, which... It's an interesting phenomenon because, you know, you bring in a guy like Arteta, who this classy Spanish midfielder, assistant under Pep, and, and you assume that what you're getting is a team that's going to be very proactive and, and lots of possession and control games. And I, and that is the ultimate plan there. But so far, where Arteta's really stood out is in being able to come up with these game plans to defeat superior teams in which they sit back and absorb pressure and hit them on the break. And he's excelled at that. But he hasn't yet figured out how to sort of break down, you know, the way defensive-minded teams, which is what they're mostly going to face. So... I actually think Arsenal could be headed for one of these frustrating campaigns in which they do very well against the other big six, but drop a lot of points against everybody else. And it ends up costing them top four. They finish fifth or sixth. Although I generally like the direction they're going. I like Arteta. I think Arsenal are actually in a good way here, but I think they get squeezed out of the top four as well. So I would go. All right, let's cut, let's cut to the chase. What's your, what's your top four then? Yeah. Liverpool city United and Tottenham with, Chelsea and Arsenal just getting squeezed out. And, okay. You know, and I have Liverpool City. <laughs> I have Liverpool City, Chelsea, and Arsenal. 
Okay. You have Liverpool, City, Chelsea, and Arsenal. Interesting. So which means Tottenham, two, two Manchester United. Counts. I mean, I'm, I'm a lot of people are are excited about Everton, you know, and and what, what's going on there, but not enough to 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 put them top four. So yeah. So you and I disagree when it comes to instead of I have Chelsea and Arsenal, and you have Tottenham and Manchester United. Correct. Yeah, United. We both agree on the Liverpool and Man City. Okay. Well, I mean, look. They're going to blow a whistle and then we're going to see uh, what's uh, what's going what's going to happen. You, uh, you're the Arsenal thing. I just want to make sure before we uh, move on, you you believe in Arteta, but you think it only that the magic only happens when they're playing up to the opponent. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like maybe one of those seasons where Arsenal are going to do really well against the other big six, but then drop points against teams they shouldn't drop points against, and that's just going to cost them the top four. Liverpool had a season like that under Klopp a a few years back, and I could sense Arsenal having that kind you know, because it is that that delicate balance of it's a very different game plan when you're playing against City and Liverpool versus when you're trying to break down the the Brightons of the world. And, And Arteta hasn't quite figured out that balance yet. I feel like he... You know, he's, he's excelled very well in, in one type of game, but he, he hasn't quite figured out, you know, the other one yet. And then finally, in order to calm uh, Alex Dow because of your, uh, your, your <laughs> down on Chelsea take, it's not necessarily that you don't think that they will come good. It's just that they need more time for everything to coalesce. Or do you think that this group of players, regardless of the money and the prestige and the, and the CVs that they have, it's just the wrong group? And you don't like Frank Lampard. I understand that too. Yeah, that's that's part of it for me. I'm actually not a huge Lampard fan. No, I I, I like all the Wait, players. What did Frank ever do to you? What's the problem? What, what, what? <laughs> so I guess I'm I guess I'm saying eventually it's going to come good. You know, if 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 in the days where Alex Dowd uh, still spoke to us on these podcasts, it'd be right. interesting his take he's, on all he's this. He's keeping but, very very quiet, yeah. uh, and because because he's very excited. Let's be honest, and you should be excited. Hey, listen, whether you're a Chelsea fan or not. I, I want to watch it. I want to. I want to see what's going on here. I, I, I'm. You spend that much money and you bring in that much talent. As I said, the expectations raise, and and rightfully so. And I'm I'm excited to see what they are. And I, I think everybody would be excited to see what they are. Even people that don't like Chelsea are excited to uh, to see what this is going to look like. Even One if they're just waiting X for it to fail. One big factor there is N'Golo Kante staying healthy. Uh, that would, uh, I, I, I might have to revise my <laughs> my take if, if you tell me that he's going to be week in, week out available. I mean, if you want to look at some other teams outside the top six, outside the big six, Leicester is fascinating to me because they had, if you remember, a terrific first half of the campaign last season, spent a lot of it in second place and were comfortably in the top sure. four. Then sort of fell apart. The second half won just four out of their 17, last 17 games. They ended up missing out on top four on the very last day. And how do they sort of mentally rebound from that? Because, it, frankly, if you told any Leicester fan at the start of the season they would have finished fifth, they would have taken that. But the way it unfolded was bitterly disappointing. And, and still, they, you look at that roster, it's, it's, they, they lose Chilwell, but they've replaced him, I think, very well with uh, Timothy Castain from Atalanta. And you still have Johnny Evans in the center of defense and Wilfred Ndidi and Madison and Vardy. And, and so uh, I'd be interested to see how Leicester, you know, can, can they sort of crash the party again and, and be in that sort of top four mix? Wolves, I, I think, have sort of established themselves as that team that's going to be in that mix as well. Uh, and then you mentioned Everton, who are a fascinating team. Carlo Ancelotti, they're, they're making a lot of big moves. James Rodriguez, Alan, Ducure. But I, I don't know. They're another team. I guess it's a similar vein to what I said about Chelsea. I'm not sure all those pieces are going to fit. Uh, as well. And, and I still look at them as sort of a mid-table-ish team. I, I don't think they're going to accomplish much beyond that. What about, and obviously uh, this is, you talk about what's interesting and fascinating out there. What about Leeds? 
it, it is does this does this happen is there magic in the premiership for uh for bielsa yeah <laughs> they're, they're absolutely fascinating they open with liverpool uh as you know i'm a bielsa groupie but uh i, I don't know i mean i've seen the people pick them mid-table i think that might be a little bit buying into the the bielsa lore a bit too much i yeah, I, I don't know. But with a guy like Bielsa, it could go any which way. Like I could also see them getting off to a bad start and him quitting after 10 games. You right, know, it's like... Right. I mean, yeah, but isn't, I mean so. isn't that part of the, the romance and the magic of Bielsa is that he's so unpredictable. And, you know, and I talk about it all the time. I, I Not necessarily a great movie, but Tin Cup with uh, with Kevin Costner, that, that moment where he refuses to lay up and just continues to go for it. And it's a metaphor for a lot of things in life and for a lot of people uh, out there, including Bielsa. And, and that's what you that's what you want from him. You recognize it could absolutely go down in flames uh, because he believes in what he believes in. And sometimes he will die on hills that aren't worth dying on. But we're both going to, and a lot of people are going to watch it specifically because of what he brings and the potential that he has to do something interesting and, and magical. But also the, the potential has for it to go very, very wrong. It won't hurt his brand or image because that's what it's been built on. But we'll, we'll watch it. All right, anything else uh, jump out at you as we head off into this first week of the 2020-2021 EPL season? No, that is it. All right, uh, we're going to take another quick break. And when we return, we'll be talking about Major League Soccer and all the craziness on and off the field that's uh, gone on this last week. All right, don't go away. Moving on. All right, Mossy, uh, time for our MLS roundup. Uh, all sorts of stuff uh, going on and seems to be <laughs> an El Trafico each and every week. And there was another one this week. Uh, speaking of great things out there, the Los Angeles Galaxy are on a roll. Now, four in a row. Uh, there was a time not so long ago where we were talking about Guillermo Barsquiloto being on the hot seat, and they have completely turned it around. They're rocketing up the both the power rankings and the actual standings out there. And not only did they win uh, over the uh, over the weekend, but it was another El Trafico against a flailing LAFC. It has to be said, and three nothing. It wasn't even it wasn't even a a question. Their dominance over their intra Los Angeles rivals continues because this is on the back of a few weeks ago winning El Trafico in uh, Los Angeles at uh, Bank of uh, Bank of California Stadium there. So. Uh, what stood out to you? Because there's a lot of stuff that happened. We had El Trafico. We had the hell is real Columbus versus uh, Cincinnati, although uh, it's much realer for uh, Cincinnati than Columbus. Uh, we had Timbers games. We have a coaching change when it comes to the Red Bulls with Chris Armis out. What stood out to you, Masi? I think the biggest story in the league is is the Galaxy. I don't know if because we live in LA, maybe our, our perspective on that is skewed, sure. but yeah, I mean, they, they're defending much better. Uh, Bingham came up big also in the first half last night and both Pavon and Leggett are, they've been two of the best players in the league since the, the restart here. So uh, it's, it's very impressive the way Guillermo Barrascaloto back from the dead. Huh? He's really sort of amazing, amazing. Chained, flipped the narrative here. And then obviously Portland had a big win over Seattle, but it might come at a major cost. We're still waiting to see Sebastian Blanco with knee injury and, and, and what the extent of it is. If it's a long-term injury, that's a devastating blow for them. But yeah, you mentioned some of the other teams that have caught my eye. Uh, Houston, Tab Ramos has them playing 
very well. Uh, Quintero and Elise and Manotas. I mean, they are they are scoring goals. They beat Sporting KC a couple of times recently here, playing well. So Tab doing a good job. Columbus, very impressive the way they blew away Cincinnati. Jossie comes off the bench, gets a couple. Philadelphia, too, took care of business against the Red Bulls. And, and we should stop there with the Red Bulls. I mean, this is uh, well, what's your what's your take on this whole situation? All right. So last week, the decision was made to fire uh, head coach of the Red Bulls, Chris Armas. Chris has been uh, there for the last few years and many more years in the capacity of assistant coach when Jesse Marsh was around. And uh, he took over a Red Bull team that had talent and was successful. He had moments of success, uh, but also I think from, uh, from the outside, uh, it looked like that there was a belief that he wasn't getting the most out of the group. Uh, I think that's a little bit unfair in that the group that Chris Armas had, for example, is very, very different than the group that Jesse Marsh had. And you got to keep in mind that the, the Red Bull organization decided that they were going to go away from the signing of the Thierry Henry's and the Rafa Marquez type of uh, scenario and spending big money and bringing big names in. And they were going to be much more strategic in terms of the money that they did spend. And that's just a, another way of saying they're going to spend less money and just, tr just rely on what they believe is a better scouting network to really be uh, smart in that money that they are spent. But they also wanted to heavily focus on uh, their development, uh, their youth development, which has produced great players, including uh, not the least of which is uh, Tyler Adams. That's all fine and well, but you damn well better have people in the pipeline and players and talent in the pipeline to replace that talent uh, that leaves, either from, a, either from your youth teams and your, your youth uh, program, or that scouting network that is able to bring in and identify those players that while they might not be the big names that we are talking about, are able to come back and, uh, and fill those positions. Anytime that you fire a coach, the reason why you fire a coach is because you believe that there is somebody else out there that can do a better job with the players that you have. And I have, to, I have to believe that that's what the Red Bulls thought, that Chris Armas was doing X with this group of players, regardless of what level those group of players are, and that they believe that somebody else can come in with the same group of players and, and do a better job. What I suspect is going to happen is that they are going to hire somebody uh, that they feel is better than Chris Armas, which is all fine and well. But then I think they're going to make changes and they are going to bring in more talent which isn't necessarily fair to Chris Armas, but that's life. Soccer isn't fair and life isn't fair. Chris Armas understands just like every other coach that you are hired to be fired and that if you're running around screaming and yelling about being fair, it's just, that's not necessarily going to happen. But in the final assessment, if, if you truly believe that Chris Armas was not getting the best out of this group, where I believe this is an inferior group than previous groups, that's, that's fine. But whoever comes in, we should judge them relative to the group that Chris Armas had rather than them coming in getting a whole, uh, uh, a whole new group. So all of that is to say that the change has been made. And from a Red Bull perspective, if you're a fan out there, you want a better team. They have not been good. They have not been able to get the results. They have not 
played an interesting or entertaining type of uh, a type of style. And ultimately, they haven't been as successful as they have been in the past. And so a change they felt needed to be made and they uh, they have made it. Do you think that this change Mossy helps, improves, changes what's going on in uh, for the, in the Red Bulls? No, and it, you know it's only one game, but you look at this match against Philadelphia, and normally at home, co- yeah, if the coach is the problem and the players are happy that the coach is gone, you get a big effort that <laughs> next game out, and you didn't see that here, which makes you think that the problems are deeper than 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 the coach. Uh, it, it's funny you look at that uh, Red Bull portfolio, and not long ago, all the teams were doing well, and so they sort of had this aura of uh, they have the magic touch. Everything they touch turns to gold. And now it's a little bit more of a mixed bag. Obviously, Leipzig and Salzburg, no issues there. But, but New York Red Bull struggling. Bragantino in Brazil are off to a terrible start in, in the league and in the relegation zone. So, it, and, and so it's a little bit of a mixed bag now with the whole Red Bull deal. Yeah, and, and, and it highlights something that's, that's important as, as all teams, but certainly the way we look at Major League Soccer and the money that's being spent, the resources, and the focus that has been put on developing players. And, you know, the business of developing players, you got to make sure that you're churning it out. And if and when you get to that point where either because you just haven't done something or it's just human beings and a, a, a crop or a generation that isn't as good as the previous one comes through, you're going to have to be able to, to withstand that. And if you believe that what you are doing from a development standpoint is going to replenish that that talent that if you're doing it right, you have sold on uh, as an asset, then uh, it, it better show up because if not, you're going to struggle, which is what, what is happening, uh, what is happening right now. Now you, they may say, you know what, we have that talent. It's just, it's a year off or it's a two, two years off in which case they're just, uh, they're just going to wait. As far as uh, coaches on the hot seat right now, I would think that Ben Olson down at uh, DC United is, is certainly on the hot seat. DC United looks horrible right, uh, right now. And look, Ben Olson has been the coach of DC United for the last 10 years. If Ben Olson was right here, I think that he would be the first person to admit that one of the reasons why he has had the longevity that he has had is because his name is Ben Olson and he is a club legend. We all have different opportunities that are afforded us. We all have different advantages that we use. And so this is not not anything that Ben Olsen uh, doesn't, doesn't know. If his name wasn't Ben Olsen, they probably would have made a change uh, a long time ago. But he is a club legend. And having that connection to the past and having that connection to the fans and to the culture and to the history, I think it, I think it is important. But at some point, when the results aren't there, it doesn't matter what, uh, what your name is. And so I think he's on the hot seat right now with what's going on uh, at DC United. All right. When it comes to uh, teams out there that are that are struggling, Atlanta United is <laughs> is it's so big and so interesting that we're going to give it a completely uh, its own segment in that we are going to discuss that this in Ask Alexi Mossy. So uh, anything else out there in the MLS land that uh, has piqued your interest? Columbus continues to to cruise. They are at the top when it comes to both their conference when it comes to. Uh, points. They're not even starting Jassy Zardes, and he's able to come in. Uh, they're running riot over their biggest uh, in their their. I don't know what's their biggest rival, but certainly their in-state rival when it comes to the hell is real. Uh, and they just decimated them three nothing. So Columbus, everything that they touch right now is turning to gold, and they are the cream of the crop when it comes to uh, Major League Soccer right now. Uh, no, that's it. That's it. Okay. 
So that's our MLS uh, roundup. We have more MLS action on tap. It should be noted that we have, or we're coming to the end of what they're calling the first phase of Major League Soccer after the bubble. Uh, there will be multiple phases and therefore more information coming out as to what that information looks like. We know that, for example, the Canadian teams continue to play themselves up in, in Canada. We don't know if that's going to change. Uh, we know that the regionalization, uh, especially when it comes to travel and rivalries that has happened, uh, has been a priority. We don't know if that's going to uh, to continue in this <laughs> Very, very strange year that and, and season that is uh, 2020. But hopefully we'll have some more information as to what these next phases of MLS in the 2020 season look like uh, as, we, uh, as we go forward. But plenty of action, uh, plenty of interesting uh, storylines when it comes to Major League Soccer in this first phase out of the Orlando uh, bubble. And it has to be said, I think very, very successful uh, so far. We've seen a couple of places that uh, that have fans in the stands. For the most part, it hasn't been with fans in the stands. Knock on wood, uh, everybody has stayed healthy when it comes to COVID. And uh, hopefully that uh, continues on, both the players, the staffs. And if you do have uh, people coming to the games, uh, they look like they're enjoying it. Uh, they're doing it in a safe way uh, and a legal way from uh, wherever they uh, end up uh, having that. And we hope that that uh, continues. All right, we're going to take another break here. And when we come back, oh, yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. We've uh, put together some different comments and questions and concerns, and we will hit those in a second here. All right, don't go away. Moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for Ask Alexi. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, different social media platforms, uh, whether it's your Twitters or your Instagrams or uh, Facebooks or anything out there. And uh, we pick a few each week as we have done this week. And uh, what do the people want to know or scream and yell about this week, Mossy? Uh, first up, at Justin underscore Hine, what DP is Atlanta United going after? All right, so if you don't know, uh, Atlanta United had a hell of a week. <laughs> Um, they have not looked good in 2020, uh, either in the bubble or outside of the bubble. We know that uh, they fired their head coach in Frank DeBoer, and right now they're continuing on with an interim coach in Stephen Glass. And we come to find out over the last week that Pitti Martinez, the former uh, South American Player of the Year, bought a year and a half ago or so for a rumored $14 million dollars is moving on and being sold to a team in Saudi Arabia, which means that the former South American player of the year couldn't hack it in Major League Soccer. Uh, that's being a little flip. But the, this is a surprise. This is not something that, that we saw coming in much more of the destination as opposed to the actual action. We always saw it coming where this is part of the plan. We saw it with Miguel and Maron to, to flip them, make money, sell them on to a quote-unquote uh, higher level, better league, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but this was not something that was necessarily part of the plan. Having said that, it's good business. They're going to make money, rumored to be in the $20 million range ultimately. So uh, they're going to make some money on this transaction, but it didn't pan out. And right now, the, the standard is a Miguel Almiron. Uh, he wasn't dominant as a player. He wasn't part of dominating type of Atlanta teams, and he didn't have the impact and then therefore the, the cachet to translate that into a move to what we would consider, as I said, a bigger club 
uh, and a bigger league. So good business, but not necessarily a home run when it comes to what he provided. Is that is that a fair assessment, would you say, Mossy, of the Pitti Martinez era? No, absolutely. It's interesting to me. You see this in a lot of different leagues. It's not unique to MLSs. When you sign uh, lots of players from a certain country, the ones that succeed and the ones that don't, it doesn't necessarily correlate to what their pedigree was coming in. Uh, there's just certain kinds of players that take to a league better than others. And so, you know, you have a guy like PT who uh, arrived at MLS in his prime, fresh off leading River Plate to the Copa Libertadores title, having scored in the final against Boca Juniors, winning South American Player of the Year, getting caps for Argentina. He struggles, while there are other Argentinian playmakers who have come to MLS with more of a journeyman-type resume, and they become massive successes. So it's just funny how that happens. I will say, though, MLS, when they signed PT, they, they got a lot of mileage out of that South American Player of the Year thing. And Tim Vickery has gone to great lengths to talk about how that award ain't what it used to be. If you look at the list of past winners, it really charts kind of realities of contemporary South American football. I mean, you're going from like, it's the award started in the early seventies. And I mean, it's like every year back there's like Pele and Zico and Maradona and Francesco Lee and Socrates and Elias Figueroa, Mario Kempis. And then even more recent time, Romario, Bebeto, Tevez, Riquelme. And then you look at the guys that have won it the last five or six years. And it's not exactly like names on that level. It's Carlos Sanchez, Miguel Borja, uh, Luan, P.T. Martinez, Gabi Gol. Uh, if you look at uh, really the last guy to win it that sort of fits this profile of like a, a young stud coming up that sort of parlayed it into bigger things was Neymar, who won it twice in 2011, 2012. And then Ronaldinho won it in 2013. Now, that was a Ronaldinho on the, in the tail end of his career had, had come back to South America after being discarded by Europe and led Atletico Mineiro to the Libertadores title and won it that year. And then after that, it's, it's a string of guys who none of them have ever had a relevant moment in their careers in Europe before or after winning that award. So that whole South American player of the year thing, you know, I, I heard a lot of, like, Hey, he won this award and Neymar won it. But you know, actually, if you look at recent evidence, it doesn't necessarily confer upon you this, this idea that you're this this uh, great player from a, on a, in a from a global standpoint. Why you got to do that? Why you got to be <laughs> such a downer? I mean, come on, man. But to answer your question, uh, Justin Hine, um, about where they go from here. So, Pitti Martinez, I think, was brought in to be fair to him under an assumption that Atlantic United was going to be very very different. Uh, in terms of the the direction that it was heading. We've talked so much about how, at least the perception is from where I stand and where a lot of others stand, uh, that Atlanta pivoted from what they were under Tata Martino. And a lot of that is um, manifested in the hiring of of Frank DeBoer, which they've obviously admitted was, was wrong. And we've talked before about, was it wrong because of the person that they hired? Uh, Was it wrong because of the person that they hired relative to the direction that they were going? In that, are they going to continue to go on a very different direction in terms of how they play? You know, I had the uh, pleasure of speaking to Darren uh, Darren Eels, the head of Atlanta United, a guy that makes a lot of the decisions and a guy who is kind of manufactured the course of this very successful machine and um, and the path that it has taken. But I think that there is a collective understanding and admitting, if you will, that they got the coaching hire wrong and they got the direction wrong. So that's a long way of saying, I think they're going to go right back to the South American well. 
I think that they still see that as providing dividends, both from a business perspective and in terms of, uh, uh, of increasing the value and selling on players and from a performance perspective, because I think they're going to marry that with a coaching hire that much more looks like a pivot back to what Tata Martino uh, was, because that I think that resonated. And I think that in a, in a certain way, they betrayed what their ideology was, what their ethos was, what their philosophy was under Tata Martino. And the importance was that that was what they were. And that's what they that's what they trumpeted right out of the shoot. And that's who they were. And it was very, very successful. And it's not that you can't go a different way. But if you are promised, and it shows up day in and day out when you're watching your team something, and then you become something very, very different, that can be jarring. And you, and you better marry it with equal success. And they weren't able to do that. And even, even the personality of Frank DeBoer was so completely diametrically opposed to what Tata Martino was. They got it wrong. They made a mistake. It happens. It happens even to, to big clubs and great clubs. Uh, and they're going to have to fix it. And I think that they will fix it by, as I said, going back to, to that well and returning to what they, what they were at the very beginning. So was this, was this a failure, Pitti Martinez? I, I, not necessarily. I don't look at it. And certainly, if you can fall back on the business of it, if you had lost money, then that would be an, an even bigger problem right now. But I don't look at it as, uh, as a failure. And so they're going to have to be really smart. Now, keep in mind, they also, at this point, Joseph Martinez is hurt. And Ezekiel Barco, who was the other big designated player and big spend that they, that they had, has, has yet to pan out. Now, there are some rumors that even he is on the, on the, sell, uh, the selling block. Which I mean, if you got somebody where you're going to make some money to sell Barco, you you drive him to the airport, man. You 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 do that deal. I know it doesn't look great, but in 2020, given what 2020 is, if there was ever there's never an ideal time, but if there ever was a better time than others to do something like this, where you take less of a hit, it's 2020, where you don't have fans each and every uh, or each, every other week coming to Mercedes-Benz, 60,000 people. Uh, so you don't have people in the stands. And there's a recognition that 2020 forever is going to have that asterisk and, and be this anomaly. So in a certain way, it was smart by the leadership at Atlanta to say, if we are going to blow this up and we are going to change, let's do it now in 2020 and be ready for 2021. Well, and it's not just anybody with Barco, it's Sevilla, your reigning Europa League champions and, and run by Montri, who's one of the smartest uh, sporting directors in the game. And they, a club like Sevilla still sees something in Barco uh, that's that's worth, you know, and it, it has to do with the age. I think Barco's 21, PT's 27. So uh, with PT Martinez, the, the money you got back, I think, salvages the whole thing. But it is slightly embarrassing that uh, that it's Saudi Arabia, and that sort of reflects that, that this whole thing maybe wasn't such a success. If you're able to flip Barco for good money to a Sevilla, then that situation amazingly kind of worked out according to plan because he was a guy that when he came to MLS, you thought he's probably using this as a bridge to a club like Sevilla. So it's interesting that that situation could actually pan out exactly according to plan. But, but far be it for me to question Monchi, uh, but if you were looking at MLS and knew anything about MLS and you had a choice between Barco and Diego Rossi, I mean, why wouldn't you go for Rossi then? I mean, I don't know what the, I don't know what the valuation is right now. And it might be that the the valuation is such that there's a huge, huge difference between the two, 
but still from a pure playing perspective, right? Yeah, and, and Monchi is great. He's not infallible. If you go through his career, there are mistakes okay. there. In fact, Roma fans would, would tell you there are a lot. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I, I hear you. I think that's a very fair point to make. All right, what else, Mossy? Next up, at Ritters90, what do you think is the biggest issue with the U.S. men's national team, midfield or defense? Well, look, I, I, midfield or defense? I mean, wouldn't you put attack in, too? I mean, where, where are the goals going to come from, too? And maybe even goalkeeping, given that uh, your number one or uh, or presumable number one isn't playing soccer in Zach Steffen, either because of his injury or now he's with Man City and who knows when he's actually going to get a game. So there are there are weaknesses, but I, I would say that the biggest issue with the U.S. men's national team right now is how they're going to play and who they are going to be. We know that Greg Berhalter stepped in and he had a a clearly articulated but very expansive type of view on how the team wanted to play and a some would say a radical departure from the past not necessarily a bad thing but one that required faith and belief and obviously the talent to be able to do that but also one that required time something that even in the best of times is limited and now certainly he as like any other national team coach doesn't have so are we going to see when this team comes back online, whatever that ends up being, a continuation or a departure and a more pragmatic approach just given the realities of it? So I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to, to that. If you want a specific area of the field in which I have, uh, I have concern, I think it would be, yeah, I think it would be defense. Um, I think we're going to find ways to be dangerous going forward. I think you know, midfield with guys like Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney, I think we're going to be solid, but you know, I don't, I don't know who the the starting center backs are right now. You got Brooks and you got Zimmerman and you got, uh, you know, different players that are there, but there's, there's nobody right now in Penn and I know Dest. So there's, there's a lot of options, but what that, what that defense ultimately looks like, and let's be honest, the, the ability, the ability for the U S men's national team to compete against the elites is what we're talking about here. So at some point, we're going to get to that game where we are where we are facing superior opposition, and we're going to have to find a way to win. If in that moment, do we stand on principle or the new principle, and we we're playing out of the back and we're trying to be much more creative and and different and focusing on possession, or do we revert to what often has been? our default, which is a much more pragmatic counterattacking type of situation and a very strong defensive type of unit that bends but doesn't break. That's that's the question for me. It is a good question. I, I would be interested to see what people believe is the biggest weakness when it comes to the U.S. men's national team. So I would add attack there. Right now we're talking Josie Altidore, Jossie Zardes, um, maybe a, a, a Josh Sargent uh, type of scenario. I mean, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure that that's 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 something that I'd be uh, comfortable with. But I still think the biggest weakness right now, or biggest unknown, I guess, uh, would be defense. You, Mossy, is there one that jumps out to you? In terms of those yeah, two? I would. I would say center back and center forward. Yeah, I mean midfield. I mean, look, I, I know some of this. Some of the players are, are young, so if you if you 
you're looking at the necessity of having to go play a do or die game tomorrow, maybe they'd be question marks, but taking a longer term view, I don't see midfield as an issue at all. I, I think the outlook is, is very bright there with, like you mentioned, guys like McKinney mm-hmm. and Adams and even guys like Aronson and Pomacall, who's injured, unfortunately, right now coming up. So I think the U.S. is loaded with talent in, in the midfield. All right, uh, let's move on to this. And I know we've promised the folks this uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. And let's let let's get to it. You 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 uh, you go ahead and read the question. This is a throwback to the days when we ended with "quote unquote" fun questions. Um, at Eric the Librarian, uh, you both talk about your favorite shows to watch. But what podcast do you listen to when you go for a run or go hiking? I listen to you two on my morning run. That is when the air is not smoky up here in NorCal. Okay. So I actually jotted some down just so you have. And, and I have been an avid podcast listener for years and years and years. I've done multiple podcasts. I've been in the podcast world for a long time. As we all know, everybody has a podcast. So there is a glut of, uh, of podcasts out there. And being able to uh, sift through all the, all the clutter and get to the quality is, is important. All right. So... Most of my podcast listening involves either, obviously, soccer podcasts, political, true, true crime type of podcasts, and music podcasts. All right, so here's a, here's a couple of them to, to, to think about there. And a lot of podcasts now have an overarching type of name, and then within that, they have different stories and different seasons. The Slow Burn podcast uh, is great. Uh, things like Watergate and Monica Lewinsky. The Shattered podcast is great. Things like Hoffa, uh, White Boy Rick, The Oakland County Child Killer. Fatal Voyage is really good. Things like JFK Jr., Princess Diana, Natalie Wood. Gangster Capitalism uh, has some really cool ones, including uh, uh, one about the, uh, the college admiss- admissions scandal, which was really interesting. American Scandal, speaking of scandals, the Paola situation in music from years ago, Harry Krishna, Exxon Valdez, Iran-Contra, Enron, all sorts of things. American Scandal is great. Blockbuster is a really good one from a uh, movie perspective. Um, they have one on uh, James Cameron and where they go through all of his from from a kid up to all of his different movies. They go through George Lucas, Steven Spielberg. That's a really good one. The music ones, uh, always uh, I always love Rock Solid with Pat Francis. Uh, Stuck in the 80s podcast with Steve Spears and Brad Williams. The Hustle podcast with John Lamoureux. And then ones that I'm looking at right now that I'm just like in the midst of here. Uh, Once Upon a Time in the Valley, which is a, uh, a look back at... Uh, Tracy Lords and uh, the crazy life that uh, that she lived down the hill, which is the, uh, the Delphi murders, which is a nutty uh, unsolved murder case. American Skyjacker, which is which is uh, which is crazy uh, about these guys back in the seventies that would uh, hijack. Uh, commercial airlines, and it really resulted in a lot of the security measures that came on later on when it comes to airports and uh, and aviation. And that's just a, that's just a, uh, a a nutty one. I'm not going to get into all the soccer podcasts uh, that I list because inevitably I will forget to name somebody, and uh, he or she will be angry at me. But there's there's lots of them out there. I, I will give a shout out to all the. Uh, the team podcasts and the supporters group podcasts out there. If there's a team that you follow, I guarantee that there's a podcast about it and sometimes and oftentimes multiple podcasts uh, out there. But that's a that's a good idea of the podcasts that I listen to. Mossy, what about you? 
It's interesting. I was thinking about this this morning. I don't listen to a single soccer podcast in English. I sort really? of use my soccer podcasting to sort of check in on other countries around the world. I listen to a bunch of Brazilian podcasts on global. I listen to a podcast every weekend from Gazeta de los Sport. And also uh, L'Equipe has a couple of good podcasts I like. And that obviously also helps me with my French and Italian studies. Other than that, I'm a big history buff. A podcast I love, which I got my father into, is called The Bowery Boys. It's about the history of New York City. Another one I like is The Earful Tower, which is about Paris. It's hosted by this uh, Australian guy that's lived in Paris for many years. He does it every week, different aspects of the city, has guests on. Uh, Paris is my favorite city in the world, so I gobble that up. I'm also something of an art buff, so I listen to a podcast called The Art Curious Podcast, which is hosted by this... Uh, a woman, Jennifer Dazzle, who's very good. She It's a weekly, every podcast is devoted to a painting or a painter. Um, she does a really good job on that. On the sort of television pop culture front, I love The Watch, which is a podcast on The Ringer, which is hosted by these two guys, Chris Ryan, Andy Greenwald. Uh, I love that. They do it twice a week. They talk about different uh, TV shows and movies. And then obviously, like you, I, I share this passion for true crime and serial killers and stuff like that. So I mean, season one of Serial is still like the life-altering experience for me. Yep. Uh, since then, I've listened to the Monster podcast, which they did a season on the Zodiac. They did another yep. season on the Atlanta Child Murders. You know, you, you listen to that too. We talked about it a lot. Uh, Soledad O'Brien did a good one recently, Murder on the Towpath, about the uh, murder of this woman, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and how it related to the Kennedy assassination. Um, there was a podcast I, I mentioned on, a while back called 1865, which is about the Lincoln assassination and the immediate aftermath of that. And then uh, Wind of Change, which we both listened to recently, sure. which was a uh, podcast about it's this conspiracy theory that there was a famous rock song that was actually written by the CIA to try to shape opinions in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And so we both got a kick out of that. So, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my uh, little arsenal here of positive. Well, that, that'll give some people uh, something to start on there. Uh, and there's, as, as Masi said, there's, there's so many more uh, over the years. And um, I probably should have kept a list of everything that, that I listened, uh, that I have listened to. And um, there's some really, really good quality stuff out there. And it's, it's gotten to the point now where people are actually spending money on them. And there are, you know, there's soundtracks to them, and there's actors involved, and there's all sorts of different, uh, different things. So, um, but, you know, it's, I, I think it's a wonderful way to tell stories. It's a wonderful way to learn stuff. Um, and, and there's so many different genres out there uh, that you can check out. All right. We come to the end of uh, yet another podcast. And at the end of each and every podcast, I give you my uh, one for the road. A couple of things uh, I just wanted to mentioned before we uh, before we head out here. Uh, one, uh, I had posted a picture from uh, back in the day, uh, back in uh, 1994, in August 1994, and it was a picture that appeared in uh, Rolling Stone magazine. And I got a lot of questions as to the story behind the picture. And you can find it on Instagram and, uh, and Twitter. And it's basically a a, uh, a picture of a lot of rock and roll looking people uh, and a group of people, and then and myself uh, in this picture. And what it is, is a picture of, as I said, uh, myself, along with members of the music community, especially the 90s music community, bands like the Lemonheads and Gigolo Ants and Buffalo Tom, and Courtney Love's in it, and Iggy Pop's in it. And it's a picture from backstage at a place uh, called the Roseland Ballroom. 
and I was uh, invited to a show there. I had made my, my love of a band like the Lemonheads very, very public at the time. And I was in town in New York City and I got a message, this was before texting or anything uh, like that. I got an actual envelope at my hotel when I checked in saying, hey, these are tickets to the show, come on by and, uh, and check it out. And I did, and next thing I know I'm backstage and it's this Zelig type of experience where I'm showing up in this uh, in this in this picture. It was a hell of a night. Courtney Love was uh, as Courtney Love as you can possibly imagine, and lived up to uh, uh, lived up to billing. Saw some great music. Saw some great craziness uh, behind the scenes that was uh, that was going on, and it was a little snapshot of what my life was like in the summer of 1994. And I tell you each and every time how how much that summer changed my life and all of the different things that opened up to me and all the different opportunities and experiences that I, that I had. And I hadn't seen this picture uh, in a while and somebody else had, had, uh, had posted it and they, they couldn't understand why, why I was there. So that's the story with, uh, with, uh, with that. And you can, uh, you can find it, as I said, online. The other thing I wanted to talk about is that, Masa, you and I both watch uh, the EPL, as a lot of people do. And uh, right now, the broadcaster for EPL are our friends and colleagues over there at NBC. Uh, they've done a wonderful job uh, over the years in bringing uh, that, uh, that league to life. Uh, another uh, colleague and friend of mine, Kyle Martino, has uh, departed that, that group and that team when it comes to uh, broadcasting uh, at NBC. And I wanted to wish him well. And I want, and I wanted to uh, thank him. You know, our uh, our fraternity and our sorority and our group and our club of American soccer uh, broadcasters, especially ones with traditional American accents. In my case, a Midwestern accent. In his case, a, a Connecticut accent. We are very fortunate, as I say each and every time, and very privileged to be able to uh, to do that. I want to thank Kyle because uh, of of what he did. And look, Kyle and I agree on different things and disagree on, on different things, but I got a lot of respect for the work that he did um, and the, the importance of it. And I don't, I'm not sure he'll realize it, but there will be a, an entire generation that over the last seven, eight years or however long that he has done it, will have grown up and will have watched the EPL on television in the United States with Kyle Martino. And by the way, this isn't about whether you agree or disagree with, with opinions that he says. That's all that's that that's neither here nor there but the fact is that he he held his own oftentimes for me he was one of the if not the most compelling and interesting part of the discussions that were uh, that were going on and that's not a knock against the other uh, folks out there they're they're oftentimes very very interesting and compelling too but he made me want to know uh, he made me want to stick around and find out what he was uh, what he was going to say and and as I said before, he might not realize it now, but there will be a, a future generation of soccer fans and maybe even a future generation of, so of, of American soccer broadcasters that seeing that person in the same way that you can relate to the path that a player took, seeing that person in that seat talking about uh, soccer in the United States and looking and sounding the way that he, uh, that he did, uh, that's important. You got to be able. Uh, you got to be able to relate. And he, I think he was. I think he was important in that uh, in that aspect. And so I wish him, as I said, all 
the best in whatever he ends up uh, doing. There will be others that come along. I think uh, Tim Howard was announced that he is going to be there. I wish him uh, luck and good things as he, uh, he as he takes that seat because, you know, not to get too long-winded or, or big, but you know, I, I do recognize that when we get on air and when we are talking about it, uh, about soccer, we do show up with a responsibility and that there is that future generation uh, and that next generation that is that is watching uh, what we do. And, and I love that. And I hope that they come along and <laughs> they, they, uh, they replace us and they take our jobs and they are better off for it. Because for most of us, whether it's myself or Kyle or other, other folks out there, uh, and I'm, I'm older than Kyle, I didn't have that growing up. And that this generation does have that to, to look at and to emulate and to play off of and to follow um, and to dissect. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And I remain incredibly proud of all the work that we all do, you know, regardless of, of uh, you know, I don't want to make this all about you know, the accents and, and all that, because everybody does a wonderful job. And what we are doing is creating, a, I think, a very unique and different type of way of broadcasting a game that the world loves and the game that we, uh, uh, that we all love. And each and every person, uh, man and woman, is important in the way that we uh, do that. But I did want to single out uh, uh, Kyle for what he uh, was doing, because it wasn't easy. And he took plenty of uh, shots and that he didn't play in the EPL. And obviously wasn't traditional in in the way that uh, that he talked and the way that uh, the game was broadcast. He had to overcome that, and I think he developed a credibility because of he's good and he worked very very hard and he took the time and uh, dealt with whatever shots were uh, were coming his way. And it goes with the ter- comes with the territory. Mossy, anything uh, else before we head out? That's it. All right. As you know, each and every week, uh, we are here giving you the State of the Union podcast. Uh, We appreciate all of you that uh, tune in, listen. Please continue to uh, review and to subscribe and download on all the different platforms out there. We will be back again next uh, week here on the State of the Union podcast, and we hope that you are too. All right. Until then, size the deck. 